Well, good, good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good, good day. We turned one years old today. Come on. It's a good day. It's a really, really, really good day. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I get to be your pastor here. And this is my incredible wife, Hannah. Can y'all give it up for her? She's absolutely amazing. Um, it's been a year, it right? Has, it has. Ooh, Ooh, it's it's hot, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hannah always spends time in our kids' rooms, and we don't have mics in our kids' rooms for a few different reasons. Um, <laughs> and so here we are. She's like, oh, my voice carries, you know? Yeah. Um, it's awesome. It's been a year, but it feels like maybe a little longer than a year. Yeah? Yeah. And I think it feels like. No, I feel like it went pretty quick. Okay. I don't know. They say when you have kids, like the days are long and the years are short. This is, this is one of those deals for us where we've actually been dreaming about this thing for like five years now. Um, five years ago, we were sitting at an anniversary dinner, and I said something to Hannah that I thought I'd never say out loud to her. And I, we'd been dreaming about starting a church, and I looked at her across the table at this restaurant we used to like to go to in Oklahoma City, and I said, hey, what if we were supposed to plant a church in Lima, Ohio, and go back home, and you looked at me and you said what? Uh, well, I actually, backstory, I actually felt <laughs> like we were supposed to, not necessarily us start a church, but that we were supposed to come back, and so when he said that, I kind of was already on board, and I was like, well, I was just waiting for you to say that, because yeah. I was ready and, she was, and she was to waiting. go. It was probably about a year for me um, before he was ready. So. Yeah. so she always knows things before I know things, just so you're aware. Like, that's just kind of the way our life rolls. It's the way it will always be, I think. There's, like, men and women nodding their head in the room. Like, everyone, that's the one thing everybody's in agreement on, right? Like, our wives will always know before we know. We and that's always know. We will always know. <laughs> always. And that's always. the way this deal went down, right? It was, I would, I'd been praying for a beach. I'd been praying for God to help us plant a church in a coastal city where I could suffer for Jesus on the ocean, you know, like, I, listen, I'm a servant, guys, all right, I'm willing to go, Lord, send me, and that was one of the things, but Hannah knew in her heart all along that we were returning home, and so we planted this church a year ago on November 1st, um, but the planting really came long before that. What you may not know and may not remember um, is we actually had a core group of people that helped us plant this church, and there were like 12 of us in a backyard meeting and dreaming about this thing for several months as we prayed and we prepared for the launch of this church that we believe God stands so much, so like so ready to do so much in our community through and I can remember our first Sunday um, I was scared to death like scared to death November 1st 2020 I remember waking up going is anybody even gonna show up you know like I knew my parents were gonna be there but I was like is anybody else going to show up? And on our very, very, very first Sunday, we saw two people raise their hand and give their life to Jesus. And that's an absolutely amazing thing. We make some noise for that. And over the course of our first year, we've actually seen 15 people raise their hand, give their life to Christ. So come on, let's make a little bit more noise again. And, and I'll be honest with you guys, like we're doing some nice golf claps, but the Bible says that when one person turns from their sin, that all of heaven goes crazy. And so we've seen 15 people give their life to Jesus. Come on, make some noise. It's a big deal. It's a really, really, really big deal. And so the fruition of this has just been something that's been a dream in our hearts. It's been something we've hoped to see. And so we're so thankful yeah. for each and every one of you to Absolutely. be here with us. Um, if you don't know, like I said, my wife Hannah leads our kids' ministry, but she does significantly more than that. 
Um, I, I like to joke, but not joke and say the reality is she's really the backbone behind so much of what happens here through the way she works, the way she serves, the way she prays. She's got so much wisdom, so much focus, so much drive, but so much grace and care and love. And um, if you guys would do me a favor, just make some noise for her one more time. She's amazing. She's going to head on back to our kids ministry. She's going to go lead your children to know Jesus. And uh, we're so, so thankful for today. Uh, The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Our name, uh, Anastasis, means resurrection. It's the Greek word for resurrection, to be raised to new life, to be raised to new life in Christ. And that's what we believe, that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter the mistakes that you've made, that when you call on the name of Jesus, that you're forgiven, you're restored, and you're raised to new life in Christ. So the best is yet to come. We believe that your past does not have to define your future. And that is the same truth for my kids. Uh, If you guys got a couple of pictures there, I've got some pictures of my kiddos, I believe. This is my daughter, Ainsley. She's like absolutely gorgeous. We're already figuring out a plan for her dating years. And the next one is a photo of my son, Leo, just the wonderment of the leaves, right? He's looking around, oh my goodness, the colors. You know, he's so blown away. But Leo is beginning to gain a bit of a reputation in our home. Um, Show of hands really quickly. How many people in the room have already begun to decorate for Christmas? Don't be ashamed. Let's go. Let's go. I'm in that crew. Our house is already beginning to look like Christmas. And my son has figured out that many of the decorations do, in fact, break. Um, He thinks it's awesome. So we were standing in the kitchen cooking, and we had some of our fall stuff going away, and the Christmas stuff's coming out, and I had this glass pumpkin, and he walks in, and he just kind of smiles at me in the kitchen, and we have tile in our kitchen floor, and I was like, hey, buddy, what are you doing there? You know, he's one years old. I didn't think I had to negotiate yet, and I was like, well, you got there, buddy. Hey, just relax. You know, give that to daddy. Give it to daddy. He goes, throws it up in the air. Boom! It shatters everywhere, and he goes, ha, ha, and I'm like, no, 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 not ha ha. Okay, so anyways, we clean it up. I'm like, it's not a big deal. He's not going to do that again. He comes in with one of our Christmas ornaments. You know, it feels the same. Huh, let's see. And he goes, boom, and he throws it on the ground. And I'm like, whoa, buddy, what are we doing, dude? Like, we've got to relax. And so quickly, he's gained the reputation in our home of, like, you know, being somebody who enjoys vandalism, right? Like, It's just kind of the way it's going. And just like his past and his present absolutely won't define his future. We know this is just a phase. He's just figuring it out. What I want you to hear today and what I want you to understand is I don't believe your past and your present define your future either. I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life that is beyond what you can imagine. I believe he desires you to know him in such a significant way. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God so that we can know God. Our life is better when we're in a relationship with him. So I believe that you were made for more than you realize. I believe you were made for a relationship with God. And that's where we're going today as we jump into today's message. But let's go ahead and let's pray together. God, I just thank you for who you are. God, you're so good and you're so faithful. Father, I praise you. I praise you. I praise you for being such a gracious and faithful God. Father, I pray that right now we would fix all of our attention on you, our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds, and God, that we would remember that you are all that matters. Father, I pray that whatever we came in with today, whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're dealing with, whatever's stressing us out, God, we'd lay that at your feet. We'd trust you with it. 
And Lord, that we just fix our eyes on you. Father, I pray over the words I'm about to speak. Father, I pray that you would omit the ones that you don't want spoken, but allow the ones that you want to be spoken to come out and that only what you want heard today would be heard. I ask for all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said. So we're going to look at my favorite Bible story of all time. It's actually where we started the church with our first Sunday. John chapter 4, it's the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. If you want to go ahead, if you have a Bible with you, open it up. If not, it'll be on the screen behind you. And Jesus has just been baptized. He's begun his public ministry. He selected his 12 disciples. He's been tested by the devil. And his ministry is just beginning to take off when we start here in John 4, 1. And it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Hold on to that. Sixth hour, that's like noon in our language. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let's go ahead. Let's just stop there really, really quick. One of my favorite parts of this passage is it said that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Um, Jesus is the son of God. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. I want us to understand that. He chooses to go through Samaria. In fact, it's important for us to understand this because Jews don't like Samaritans and Samaritans don't like Jews. So I want to show you what the normal Jewish path would have been like on this map going going from Judea to Galilee. They would have actually walked all the way out and around Samaria. Normally, they would have taken three extra days to their journey to get to the other side. That would have been like the equivalent, not really, but sort of time-wise, of you saying, hey, i got to drive from Bluffton to Wapak. I don't want to go through Limas. I'm going to go to Van Wert and then down to Wapak. Like, that wouldn't make any sense, right? That doesn't make any sense to us, but that's what they did every single time. By foot, three extra days' journey to get to the other side, all because they did not want to go through Samaria. And Jesus is making a point to his disciples by doing this. He's saying, hey, we're, I know you would normally go around Samaria. That's not what we're going to do this time. And in my heart and in my mind, I imagine the conversation going between Peter and Jesus as Peter's the oldest disciple, maybe planning the trip saying, hey, I gave us three days to get there. And Jesus is saying, that's great, but we're only going to travel for one of those days. And Peter going, what? No, 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 Jesus, we always go around. That's just what we do. What do you mean we're going to go through the heart of Samaria? That doesn't make any sense to me. And Jesus is trying to prove a point to them saying, hey, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what your genetic line is, they matter to God. And I came for all people. So they belong. They matter. Your race doesn't matter. Your family heritage is not important. God loves them. And so he's also doing that to make a point to the woman he's about to talk to and has begun to talk to. I told you to hold on to the time of day. The time of day is noon, and that's important for us to pay attention to because no woman would have ever been drawing water at noon unless she was a woman who wasn't allowed to draw water with the rest of them. In that culture, most of the women would have gotten up early in the day. They would have gone before the sun had come up, carried their jar up to the well, filled it up, 
and come down for two different reasons. One, it's a really hard task, so let's not do it under the heat of the sun. It's really, really difficult. But number two, because we want the water to stay cool, right? So we need to get it up there before it gets hot in the day, get it back home, get it into a nice, cool place. So that would have been their goal. But for her, she has to draw water at noon in the middle of the day because she's a woman that her society has labeled as an immoral woman, as a, as a sinner, as an outcast, as someone who doesn't have the rights to draw water at the same time as everyone else. So she has to draw water by herself. And so she asks Jesus, what are you doing talking to me and asking me that question? And Jesus says this in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Um, I resonate with her question right here. If you're talking to somebody and they say, if you if you'd asked me, I would have given you living water. And you're like, where's the living water? Like, what does that mean? I've never heard of living water. So her head has to be reeling at this point. And she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus is talking about living water, and the translation for that is salvation. He's talking about the grace and the mercy that's only going to come from him. And so she hears this idea that, like, hold up, I'll never get thirsty again. I'll never have to wonder again. I'll never have to work again, like, at this task, and I'll never have to feel what I feel. So please, if you've got water that will never make me thirsty again, please give me that water so I don't ever have to come here again. And when I see that, that word, so I don't have to come here to draw water again, um, I'm overwhelmed with something as I picture this story unfolding. And that is the fact that that well must symbolize so much to her that she doesn't want it to, right? Every single day she goes up to the well in the middle of the day because that's the time the society has told her she's allowed to draw water. You're not good enough to be with the rest of us. You can't do it with the rest of the women. you got to go by yourself because your mistakes set you apart in that way. So every single day, this woman travels to this well in the middle of the day, at the hottest part of the day, at the hardest part of the day, by herself to do a task that obviously would give her pain and anxiety all along the way. And some of us have stuff like that, right? Like places and things may trigger something for you. Maybe you're driving by something and you're like, oh, I don't want to remember that. Or you hear a song that comes on the radio and it reminds you of a time in your life that wasn't great. And you're like, oh, let's just change the channel on the radio. If anybody does that anymore, you know, switch the song on my playlist. Whatever the case may be, you have these moments, you have these feelings. The reality is her every day is that. Every single day, this woman shows up to the well knowing the reason I'm doing this at noon is because I'm a sinner, because of my mistakes, because society has said, I don't matter as much. I can't do the things that everyone else can do. This place in so many ways reminds her of what has become her identity. It reminds her of all that she's done wrong and all that she's not. So Jesus talks about this living water. So naturally, she would be so overwhelmed at the idea of not having to return to that well. But then Jesus takes the conversation up a notch. 
Verse 16, he says this, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she must be thinking to herself at this point, like, who is this dude? Who is this guy? At first, I thought he was just this like crazy Jewish guy who's sitting down next to the well talking to me when he shouldn't be. But now he's starting to tell me a bunch of stuff. He's talking about living water and he's starting to tell me a bunch of stuff about my life. There's no way he would have known the full details too. He, he must be a prophet. And she says to him in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that people ought to worship. And to give you context more on her background, she's a Samaritan woman. If you read the New Testament, you'll basically see a breakdown as far as ethnicity goes. They'll say Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan. And so Jews are the line of Israel. Those are God's chosen people. The Gentiles are the people that are not the line of Israel. Like, it's really split like that. They didn't come from the line of Israel. It's like everybody else. But the Samaritans have Jewish heritage in their line. And because of that, the Jewish race actually looked at them as less than Gentiles. They hated them because of their line. They viewed it as a polluted genetic line. It's a terrible philosophy, a terrible thought process, but that's where their heads were. So they thought, I'm not going to associate with Samaritans because their genetic line is bad based on the historical data of where they came from. And so this woman is standing here saying, hey, like, I know what our father said because she would have had some of that Jewish heritage and understanding and belief in her, in her childhood as she was raised, as she was grown. A part of her life would have been understood much of the Jewish customs and culture. And so she says to him, hey, aren't, aren't we supposed to, we're supposed to worship on the mountain, but you guys say, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says this to her in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. There is so much happening here. Imagine the feeling from this Samaritan woman. Up until this point into the conversation, she probably just believed that her life just is what it is, right? Every day I walk up this, this hill to go to the well. Every single day I show up at noon. Every single day people give me the side eye, right? Every single day they look at me, they know what I've done wrong. They've said I'm not good enough. Every single day I come to this place that tells me what my sins are. And it tells me everything that I'm not. And she has this interaction with this crazy Jewish guy who then she thinks is a prophet and then she finds out is the son of God, the Messiah, the one she's been waiting for. Remember, her ancestors would have told her of a coming Messiah. And she stands there as this woman who would have been broken, who would have been hurting, who would have been saying, like, I don't matter. But yet she's having a conversation with somebody who's staring her right in the eyes and says something profound to her. He tells her everything she's done, right? He gives her truth, but then he gives her grace. 
And this interaction changes everything for her. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's looking this woman in the eyes and saying, listen, I know nobody loves you. I know nobody cares about you. I know you've had a hard life, but the Father, God in heaven, is seeking people like you to worship him. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for obedience. And he's saying, I'm seeking people like you. And what I want you to hear today, no matter where you find yourself in your life, maybe you're on a mountain, you're in a valley, you're somewhere in between. I believe with all of my heart that God is looking for people like you to worship him. He sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you could have a relationship with God in a way that transcends all your mistakes and all your failures. And no matter what's been defined of you by our culture, by our community, by your friends, by your family, God looks at you and he said, hey, listen, I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. And I want you to own that. And I want you to feel that today. And understand that you don't have to earn your way to God. You don't have to earn your way to his love. He's seeking you. He wants you. All of you. The good, the bad, the stuff you're so ashamed of you don't tell anybody about he sees it he looks at you he says I know about it but I want you that's the beautiful thing about grace grace isn't like a wink and a nod with a gun in a back alley it said I didn't see that grace is saying I see it I see it but I still want you I still forgive you I still love you I see it I know about it but I want you more than anything I want you to be united with me. And so if you feel yourself in a place today that you don't know, do you matter? Does God love you? I want you to know. He's saying to you, I'm seeking people such as you to worship me. So Jesus drops the biggest bomb he could have ever dropped, right? She's like, I know there's going to be the Messiah come at some point. Jesus is like, hey, it's me. You know? And just imagine the overwhelming sense that would have come over her in that moment as she's like, this is such a casual way for the Messiah to introduce himself, right? He didn't come riding in on a horse, proclaiming who he was. And in fact, if you read scripture, this is the very first person in scripture he reveals himself to as the Messiah. This woman in Samaria that everyone had cast aside. He looks at her and he's like, hey, let me let you know a little secret. I am that guy. And everything changes for her. Everything changes for her because Jesus changes everything. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. It gets a little lighter here for a second. Verse 27 says, just then his disciples came back. His disciples are like age like 16 to like 25, somewhere in that range, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. But they come back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Essentially, they show up and they're like, oh, he's still here. And why is he talking to that girl? I don't know. Are you going to say anything? I'm not saying nothing. Right? Like they have this conversation back and forth. And they proceed forward. 
as the woman does something remarkable. So the woman leaves her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to Jesus. She cannot contain her joy. I want you to see that right away. She's had this interaction with Jesus. She does not keep it to herself. She cannot contain her joy. And for the first time, this woman knows that she's loved. She knows that she's been made for more. And she leaves behind her shame at the feet of her Savior. That jar that she would have carried every single day to the well represents her shame, represents the heartache that she would have felt. She has an interaction with Jesus and she leaves it at his feet. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives us. Leave your jar at his feet. Leave your jar at his feet. Whatever you're carrying around, whatever you think about yourself, whatever you're processing, whatever secret, whatever fear you have, that's your jar. Leave it at his feet. And run into the city and do what this woman did. She runs off freely without care. Meanwhile, the disciples, the teenage boys, are saying, Hey, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And they said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And they're pretty new into following Jesus. So I imagine this conversation was pretty great. Come on, Rabbi, eat. Let's get on the road. Let's get out of Samaria. And he's like, I've got food you don't even know about. And they're like, oh, sorry, my bad. And he says, they said, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. They said it was going to take three days to get out and around. Jesus used three days. He just used two more days to minister to the Samaritans. And it says, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And after two days, he departed for Galilee. And there's so much here. But the thing I want to highlight first is that the outcast became the catalyst for change. The one that everyone doubted. The one that everybody overlooked. The one that everybody tossed to the side. That's who God chooses to reveal himself to first. God, God the son, Jesus, says, hey, I'm the Messiah. She's like, wow. And then she's also the one that's utilized to bring revival to a city. To bring revival to a city. Before that day, she would have never believed that that was possible, right? Her life was in shambles and everybody knew it. To her, she probably wondered even why she was made. Maybe some of you resonate with this. Like, am I made just to exist? Am I made just to suffer? Am I made to make the wrong decisions? Like, what am I made for, God? And the truth is, she found out she was made for more. You see, the interesting thing is our reputations follow us everywhere we go. Maybe your reputation around town is that your life is in shambles just like this woman. Maybe your reputation is actually on the other side where it's like, Hey, everybody knows that I've worked really hard and I've done a lot of things and I've worked like crazy to accomplish a lot. Now I feel this ridiculous pressure to keep that up, to earn the approval of others. And maybe you've turned that a little bit into how God might see you, that you've got to earn your way to him. And maybe you're sitting there in the middle or just like this woman going, I wonder if God could ever use me. What I want to say to you is look at this story. Look at who he chose 
to use. The outcast is the person who Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah to first and the person responsible for revival in her community. And she runs. She doesn't walk, but she runs to tell the people who have heard her, the people who have cast her aside to extend the grace she's just received to those around her. Her example is tremendous. The reason we're going back to this story is because before we ever launched this church, I was like, God, what kind of church do you want? And he's like, a church after my own heart. And I said, like, okay, what's that look like? What's the grace? What's the mercy? What's the peace that you want us to show you? And I felt led back to this story time and time again because what we see is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. God is faithful. God is good. He wants you. And so we came up with this This like slogan, right? Mission statement that says to know God and to make him known in our community. Like our mission is to know God and to make him known in our community. And so much of that came out of this story. Jesus says to the woman and God seeking such people to worship him, to know him, to find a relationship with him. And then her response on the back end of that is to share the truth of who Jesus is with the world around her in her community. Like I said before, it doesn't take perfection. It takes obedience. You were designed for a relationship with God. You were designed to share the goodness of who God is with the world around you. And for every person in this room, the truth is no matter what your past or your present looks like, God is the, is the director of your future. If you will just lay your life down to him and say, whatever you want, God. Whatever you want, I want. Make my heart like yours. Take what I've clung to. Take what I've been holding on to. Take it from my hands and allow me to fix my eyes on you as you lead me. Because you matter. You were made for more. And listen, you may not be aware of this, but there's like 75 to 80,000 people in our community, Allen County, who don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's like 75 to 80,000 people in Allen County who don't know that they're made for more. And I read this story of one woman who ran off with intentionality, with energy, with focus, with drive and a pure heart, who brings revival to her entire community. And when I hear that number 75 to 80,000, sometimes I can think it's going to take an army. And then I read this story. And I go, I don't, actually, it doesn't take an army. It takes obedience. It takes willingness. It takes somebody saying, hey, listen, I've got this antidote to fear. The Prince of Peace, his name is Jesus. I've got the answer to what you're overwhelmed with. His, his name is Jesus. And being willing to steward that to the world around us. And in a room this size, I believe that we have the makings of something absolutely incredible. Something so special as I believe our God wants us to reach out to those who do not know him to help him know him and make him known. There's a better way. There's a better way. And you can communicate that message to everybody around you. You're made for more. There's a better way. His name is Jesus. So one year into this church, I believe the future is so bright. To a world that's in desperate need of hope, like I said, we've got the answer. May we always seek to know God and to make him known in our community. Let's pray together.